Welcome to this message from Alpha and Omega Christian Fellowship. We hope that you'll be blessed and encouraged by what we have to share. Uh, the title of what I'm sharing today is Partaking in the Divine Nature. If you want to give it a title, that's kind of just the theme and the subject. I want to thrash out with you and just talk through a little bit with you this morning. And I want to encourage you in your Bibles, turn to the book of 2 Peter. The letter that Peter wrote, the second letter that Peter wrote, the, right near towards the back of your Bible, 2 Peter. And we're going to read the first few verses uh, of the book of 2 Peter. And if you have your devices, go there. If you have your Bibles, go there. I'm reading from the New King James. But I'd like you to follow, follow with me. And we're going to break some at aspects of the scripture down, some parts of this verse down that, that really stood out for me. And I think there's so much power and life in this portion of scripture. So let's read what Peter says. Simon Peter, a bondservant of the apostle, and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith by the righteous, with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. So, folks, this letter is directed to you and I today. It wasn't originally directed, obviously, but to those who have obtained like precious faith. If we have faith in Jesus, if we have obtained that like precious faith, then this letter can be as much to you as it could be to the original person that Peter wrote it to. So I want you to understand this is addressing you this morning. Peter says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of our Lord. Grace and peace be multiplied in the knowledge of God and Jesus Christ our Lord, as His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue, by which, we have, been, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. There is so much in that one sentence. It's quite a long sentence, but it is jam-packed with principles and values and lessons for us to learn that we can understand how the kingdom of God works just in this short little portion of Scripture. The first thing I want to point out to you is this. The degree to which we will partake of the divine nature of God is directly yoked or linked with our knowledge and our understanding of Jesus Christ. He says, according to the knowledge of God and Jesus Christ, we will understand His promises, we will understand who He is, and we will partake of His nature. So the more I know Jesus, the more I have the ability to become like Him. The greater my level of revelation, the greater my level of incarnation. Does that make sense? We also see that grace and peace are multiplied to us in the knowledge of Jesus. So what is grace? Grace is not just sort of a divine cover-up. Grace is not just the favor of God, but it's the product of the favor of God. It's the fact that Jesus himself is with us, doing in us and through us that which we cannot ourselves do. That's what grace is. And it comes to us how? Through the knowledge of him. Now, obviously, we're not speaking about mental knowledge here. We're talking about experiential knowledge. We're talking about a deep, intimate knowledge that has settled down deep within our, our hearts. It's like if you imagine your life as a tree, it's the place that your roots are digging from. 
It's not the bird that comes and sits on the branches now and then or the person who walks by. It's not the brook over there that you can see on the other side of the valley. It's the very substance that you are drawing from. It's that kind of knowledge. It becomes a part of you. And we also see that this knowledge activates and energizes exceedingly great and precious promises of God. You see, you and I all, each one of us, have the same promises from God. Amen? Amen. God hasn't promised me more than you or you more than me. But I only walk in those promises to the degree that I have a revelation of them. Though my knowledge of them, again, experiential knowledge, the personal knowledge. Here's the difference. The difference is, is like this. It's like me coming and saying, Tanae, I'm, I'm very wealthy and I've got lots of money and you know, you can have some if you like. That's, that's, that's knowledge. Tanae now knows I've got lots of money and he can have some if he likes. But revelation knowledge is, to, is, is that understanding of Tanae, I have lots of money here. It's yours. You've got it now. You are, he, he's able to receive it and assimilate it and work with it and do it. Poor example, I know, but often simple things like that help us to understand. That real knowledge activates in him the potential that I carry. Do you understand? And, and that through this activation of the exceedingly great and precious promises of this exceedingly wonderful grace, we may become partakers of the divine nature. And that's what I really want to focus on today. I think very often we focus on the promises, and those are good. Very often we focus on the need for knowledge, and that is good and important, because all of these things lead into that. But what is the essence of it all? What is the end product? To what end? Why? Just, if we just focus on the promises, we make it about ourselves, right? But there's an end goal here. It's that light. It's that divine nature. And by that glorious and divine nature, we can avoid, Peter says, being implicated in or coming under the influence of the corruption that is in this world through lust. Now, I want to focus on that because I think that's really important. What is lust? You know, especially in church contests, often when we, we use the word lust, our first thought goes towards sort of a sexual immorality. It goes towards the desiring of sensual pleasure and going after those things. Now, lust includes that, but really, the simplicity of lust is this. Lust is the desire for self-gratification. Simple. I can lust after food. I can lust after my way. I can lust after money. It is the desire to be gratified in my own affections, and that's really important. Love, uh, lust is an emotional thing. It's very emotive. I don't know if you realize that. It's a very emotive thing. It, it takes, uh, there's a longing inside you for something. It's not just a desire, but it's a deep longing for self-gratification. And it's obviously the opposite of the divine nature of God, because the divine nature of God isn't focused on self. True love, agape, unconditional love, is always focused on others. It's meeting the need of others. It's blessing others. It is lifting others up. That's what love does. Love exists not to take or receive. Love exists to give of self and to share. I mean, you could say, what is the nature of God? How do we break it down? I'll give you a few points of the nature of God. Number one, God is holy. We sang about it this morning. What does that mean? It means that He is set apart from all the corruption. He's in a league of his own. There is no one like him. He's in a league of his own in power, a league of his own in glory. He's in a league of his own in majesty, in understanding, in wisdom, in glory. In, you name it, 
There is nobody who is like God. He is apart from it all. He is above it all. He is not subject to it all. He is holy, set apart. But it also means that he is set apart from all that which is corrupt, all that which is defiled, all that which brings down and, and causes death. The second thing about the nature of God is that it is not only that it's holy, but that it's untainted and incorruptible. You cannot corrupt God. It is holy, but also incorruptible. It will never stop being holy. Peter, later on in, this, in his first letter, 1 Peter 1.23, he says that we have been born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible through the word of God, which abides forever. It is never going to be corrupted. And that's really good news because it means not only is my salvation secure, but it means that the Word is always going to do what the Word says it will do. It is incorruptible. My understanding of it doesn't change it. The day of the week doesn't change it. It remains true and it remains strong forevermore. But really, I think if we want to understand the nature, the divine nature of God, there's one portion of Scripture we need to go to and that's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which talks about love, the love of God. You see, the Bible doesn't say that God has love. Love is not an attribute of God. It's the essence of God. The Bible says God is love. And so 1 Corinthians starts telling us what he's like. God or love suffers long and is kind. He suffers long and is kind. How many of you suffer long when you don't get what you want and desire and stay kind about it? That second part's really hard, right? Because that's what lust does. I'm not being satisfied, and so I'm going to start getting upset and throwing my toys out the cot now because I am not getting what I... I'm not willing to suffer long. Love suffers long, and it's kind. It does not envy. It doesn't parade itself. It's not puffed up. It does not behave rudely, nor does it seek its own. It's not provoked. Listen to this. Love thinks no evil. It does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, and love never fails. It never, ever fails. Now think about that. If that is the nature of God, and that the knowledge of Him and His promises calls us into that, we bring ourselves into a position of spiritual victory, spiritual success that never fails. It may not always look like we think it's going to look, but we begin living life from a place of victory, a place that doesn't know defeat. And so this nature of God, it is loving, it is generous, it is kind, it is compassionate, it is joyful. And it never fails. And because God is these things, when we experience Him, that will always be our experience of Him. Did you get that? Because God is these things, our experience of God will never be anything else. That enables me to identify very clearly what voice it is I'm listening to. If I'm feeling condemned, if I'm feeling unworthy and judged, is that of God? No, that's, from the, that's the voice of the accuser of the brethren. Because even when God points out my wrongs and even when God disciplines me, it's not pleasant at the time, but it's always laced with grace and laced with love because that is who he is. 
So my nature, his nature determines our experience of him. But not only that, when he gives us or when we receive and we begin to embody his nature, the world around us begins to experience the same thing through you and I. Isn't that incredible? The world around us can experience what long-suffering looks like. When you've been at the restaurant and you've waited for your food for 45 minutes, but yet you're still treating the waitress kindly, and you're still speaking gracious words over her. When you've not got the service that you wanted, I've recently had this experience, and I, I, we ordered some things and they didn't come and they didn't come and they didn't come, and eventually I'm now talking to the, 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 the senior guy on this, in this company, and he apologized. Eventually they come and they're damaged. So now they've got to go back again, and he came to fetch them. And how, how do you deal with those situations? Well, I'll be honest with you, in the beginning, not too well. We all have that, right? But how do you process that? And how do you take that out? And do you, do you reflect that and subject that person to your frustration, or do you identify what it is and say, I don't want to work and live from this place? You see, because God is this way, and my experience of Him is not like that. You know, there's this, there's this idea of rights in our world and in the way we think and in the way we live today that says, you know, I don't deserve to be treated that way, or I don't deserve this kind of service. And I think we're very entitled in that mindset. But I've come to realize, you know, Jesus one day said to me, Michael, aren't you glad you don't get what you deserve? And when you think about it that way, you know what really... I'm actually quite glad I don't get what I deserve. Because what I deserve, we're not going to go there this morning. Let's just say I don't get it, praise God. Jesus took what I deserve so that I could have what He deserves. The divine nature, the love, the affirmation of a father over a son. Ephesians, Paul brings out the same Mindset, right in the beginning of the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, verses 3 to 4, I'll read it for you. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy. What does that mean? The same as it means for God, set apart. Set apart from this world, set apart from the corruption, devoted and set apart entirely unto Him, and without blame, before Him, in love. In love. That's the position we find ourselves in. You see, that is, what, that is God's position. God does not exist in lust to try and get what He wants for Himself. He exists in the position of love to give Himself away to, the world around, to, to our world, to you and me to our world. He gives Himself away constantly. And what happens is when we put our faith in Him and when we receive His love in our, in our hearts and lives, the correct manifestation is that we no longer live for ourselves, as Paul says, but we live to give ourselves away, to give ourselves to, to serve those around us. The nature of this world expresses itself through lust, through lust. What can I get? What's in it for me? How can I promote myself? How can I get more for me? That's the spirit of this world. But the nature of God expresses itself through love. So let me ask you a question. If God has given us these great and precious blessings and promises, as we've articulated, and if He calls us to partake of His nature, what is it that is holding us back from experiencing it in fullness? 
That's a really good question to ask, don't you think? Because God says it's all there, it's all available for you, you've got this, it's, I've given it to you freely, I hold nothing back from you. But if I'm honest, am I walking in the fullness of it? Have I experienced it all? Or am I satisfied with what I got? Am I, am I happy? Well, the first answer, obviously, is knowledge. We think we, we, we've got this idea that there's a lot of stuff that's available to us, but, but that revelation, it's not really coming up through the roots yet. It's still, we still watch it walking by. We still see people preaching about it. We hear songs and we sing them about it. But it hasn't truly settled down deep within our hearts yet that we can draw from. But also, it's because our focus and our programming is still so much according to the ways of this world. Folks, Jesus, when he prayed for his disciples, he said, Father, I do not ask that you take them out of this world, but I ask that you keep them from the evil one. He said to them, you are in this world, but you are not of this world. Now, being in this world means, means that this world is going to affect us. We have a, 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 a body that is subject to the same thing everybody else's body is subject to in this fallen world. You know, many people, every time somebody gets sick, oh, that's the enemy attacking, and that's the devil. No, you're just part of a fallen world, and your body's part of this world, and you're going to have to deal with those kinds of things, and praise God for healing and, and all these things, and that's just a part of living in this, in this place. You're going to be subject to news you don't want to hear, words you don't want to hear, people and thoughts and desires you don't want to hear, and we become subject to them, and if we give ear to them, and the more we're exposed to them, the more they soak in the more we become like them. It's the truth. It affects us. Our focus is on self-gratification, self-love, this, this lust that the world has. And that's the primary attribute of the corruption that Peter speaks of, that the nature of Christ brings us out of and delivers us from. That the perfect and wonderful will of God for you and I, His great promises, His precious promises, and His very nature within our hearts, it gets corrupted or perverted or circumvented through our own selfishness. And we don't always see it. I'm going to read you a scripture just now. It's going to, it was so enlightening to me. I'd never seen it this way until a couple of weeks ago. But let's just look at some more. Let's just run some more comparisons on the difference between love and lust. Love gives. Lust withholds. So, I mean, let me give you an example. I heard a preacher preaching a little while ago, and he was talking about shepherding, it was a leadership meeting, and he says, some pastors love their flock, some shepherds love their flock, other shepherds lust after their flock. And what he, what he means by that is, some people use the people of God they, for what they can get, for what they can do for them, and it's about their ministry, and it's about their name, and it's about how they can build up themselves, and the people exist to, 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 for this one, that's lust. That's using the people of God. But a shepherd, a true shepherd, Jesus says, lays down his life for the sheep. He doesn't expect the sheep to lay down their lives for him. Lust takes, withholds, love gives. Love receives. Lust takes. There's a big difference there. Love blesses, regardless of how I'm treated. Lust gives to each one as he feels they deserve. Love gives mercy. Lust demands justice. Love serves. Lust desires to be served. And there is a big difference there. There's such a gulf. But listen, let's be honest. If we look at the spirit of this world, if we look at even some ways in our thinking, how much are we, like, are we, are we prone to withholding that which is due? 
to returning like for like, treating people as they treat us, as we feel they deserve, coming into places expecting to be served or honored rather than seeking avenues to serve. And the real arena in which all of this plays out is in the area of our affections. Let me ask you this question. When you dream, your dreams, your dreams of, of what life could be, your dreams of, of, you know, you read the Word and you imagine the Scriptures and you imagine what it may look like, do you only dream for yourself and for your own life or do you actually dream of a better world for others as well? Good question, isn't it? Am I only dreaming about the house that I want or the children that I want or the success that I want or the business that I want, what I want? Or do I actually have a heart of God that begins to dream? You see, because here's what happens. We always give ourselves to making our dreams come true. We want our dreams to come true. And there's truth in the power of that. You dream it, you can make it happen. Is there truth in that? Absolutely it is. And so we live in a world where that happens. People dream dreams and they live their lives trying to make them happen. God had a dream. Well, Martin Luther King. And he saw that dream came to fruition. But that dream was not for himself, was it? He had a dream that people will be treated equally. And the man gave his life for that dream. His dream was bigger than himself. Let me ask you this. When you dream, do you dream just for yourself? Or is there a kingdom of God living within you? Is there something within you that has possessed you with love which doesn't exist just for yourself, but that exists for others? Do you dream of a better life for others? Do you know your place and your part in God's kingdom and His vision? Let me talk to you about that scripture I was telling you about. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Would you turn there with me? 2 Corinthians chapter 6. I want to talk about this for a little bit and then we'll come back to Peter. So don't lose your spot. 2 Corinthians 6 verse, verse 11. We're going to read all the way through to chapter 7 verse 1. Ah, so you got it up there. Thank you. Paul cries out. He says, O Corinthians... We have spoken openly to you. Our heart is wide open. Let me just give you some ex what Paul is referring to here. This is his second letter to the Corinthians. The first letter, he was sorting them out. And uh, he brought a lot of correction. And a lot of them got offended with him. A lot of them weren't communicating with him in the same way. And the, the, I want to bring you the context so that you understand what, what Paul is saying here so that we can understand the principle. I don't want to, the, the, the purpose of, the, of my message is not the context, but the principle within it. There was relational tension going on, and Paul here is basically saying, we're not withholding anything from you, but the issue is on your side. There's things that are in your heart which is stopping this communication from being rich. Can we sort them out? Can we deal with these things and get rid of them so that we can move on together in good relationship? That's really what Paul is saying here. But let's get back here, and he says in verse 12, you are not restricted by us, but you are restricted by your own affections. Why do we not see more of the life of God within our hearts? Is it because God is withholding it or because He hasn't freely given it? No, it's because that deep in our hearts we actually have love for other things that outweighs the love that we have and the desire that we have to be like God, to carry the nature of God. Our own affections are still lustly for self-gratification, if you were, if you will, rather than our affections being motivated, burst, and, and expressed in and through and for love. He goes on to say, Now in return for the same, I speak to you as children, you also be open. He's saying, I'm being open with you. Would you be open with us? Everything I'm trying to pour into you, Paul is saying, is being hindered because you are not open. There's things going on in the background in your heart which are preventing it from getting through. And then he goes on to say, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. 
Let me give, have a bit of liberty here to spell out what he's really meaning there. This is not just about don't marry somebody who is an unbeliever or don't go into business and become... Paul, that's, that's the really base understanding of the Scripture. What Peter is trying to say to Paul in the Scripture... Sorry, what, what Paul is trying to say, not Peter, is do not partner with unbelievers in their affections, pursuing the same ends by the same means that they are pursuing. Did you get that? Don't partner with unbelievers... Don't go after the same things. That Don't let that spirit of lust for self-gratification be in you. Don't, don't give yourself to that. Don't allow yourself to be dragged into that. He goes on to say it in a number of different ways. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? In other words, how can those who, who, who have a moral law and a standard to live by live in the same way and pursue the same things that those who don't? How can those who carry the love and the nature of God, which is all about giving, walk alongside those who don't have that nature, who are all about getting? Partnering with being together. In other words, having the same spirit, having the same mind. And what communion is light with darkness, and what accord is Christ with Belial, or what part has a believer with an unbeliever, and what agreement has the temple of God with idols? In other words, what agreement is there in the place of God's presence versus the place of man's imaginations about himself. The place of true love versus the place of self-gratification. He goes on to say, for you are the temple, the, res the residence of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell among them, I will walk among them, I will be their God, and they will be my people. I am fully devoted to them, and they are fully devoted to me. I exist for them, Oh, that's dangerous theology. Hold on. I exist anyways, but my love is aimed at them, and they exist for me. You happier with that one? <laughs> and then he says, therefore, come out from among them and be separate. You see, what I, want to understand, what I want you to understand in what I'm addressing this morning is not behavior. It's not just the people you hang out with. It's not just the friends you have, because I believe it's, it's a good thing for Christians to have unbelieving friends. It keeps us sober. It gives us an avenue to, to reach out and gives us an avenue to be a blessing. I'm not, that's not what I'm saying here this morning. I'm talking about the heart and the ethos. If we want to be a shining light, if we want to walk and capture the nature of God, we've got to get rid of that which pollutes it, which perverts it, which stops it from working and flowing in our lives. There is a, a work of separation that needs to take place. He goes on to say, I do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you will be my sons and daughters. That's a key. We're going to look at that in a moment, says the Lord. Therefore, having these promises, what promises? I will be your God. You will be my people. I will be a father to you. You will be my sons and daughters. Let us cleanse ourselves from all the filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of the Lord. Why is that last promise significant? Because sons and daughters carry the heart of their father. Sons and daughters, not infants. Infants, are, they grow up, we know, little kids, infants, and as they grow through toddlerhood, and they are innately selfish. Has sharing come naturally to any of us? I've got two little kids. I, I can tell you straight, sharing does not come naturally. That is mine. That is mine. If I have it, it's mine. If it's on the table, it's mine. If you've got it in your hands, it's mine. If it's broken, it's yours. 
We learn, we grow in these things. Sons and daughters, as they mature, as they capture the heart of their father, they grow, as children do, to learn his heart and to live according to his ways. You see, God promises us that the degree to which we set our hearts and affections on him is the degree to which we will take on his likeness. It comes back to that very first principle we spoke about in the beginning. Because here's the, here's, the, here's the trick, folks. Here's the catch. All of us know, as believers, that Christ, there is an expectation incumbent upon us, if you like, to represent Jesus Christ, to manifest Jesus Christ to the world around us. Okay? We know that. We understand that. You, you've all been nodding your heads at me this morning and smiling so beautifully. But here's the catch. We cannot muster Christ-likeness. We cannot bring it about. We cannot make it happen. How many of you have tried? It's okay. I didn't need it yet anyways. You see, if we are living our Christian life trying to muster Christ-likeness, trying to be good and to do good from our own strength, I must have my quiet times, I have to go to church, uh, I, I, I have to pay my tithes, I have to feed the poor, I have to share the gospel, that's religion. That's all the things I have to do. That's all the musts. That weighs me down, that takes all the love out of it, that takes all the life out of it. It's not a pleasure, it's not a joy, it's a chore. And if any part of our life is a chore like that, our life of, of, of worship to God, there is no joy in it. God gets no pleasure from it. We get no pleasure in it. It's laborious. Any of you been there? I think we get caught up in life sometimes and our affections go other places and we lose the reason why we do things very easily. That's why I say it's, it's, these changes that are taking place, they're actually really good. Because when we were stripped of our meetings we began to reevaluate our relationships. When we were stripped of being able to be together in one place and go to work, we were, we were stripped of what was really important to us. Uh, we, we were reminded to reevaluate what's really important to us. Spending all this time with our family. How did that go? Some of us loved it. Some of us can't wait to get back to the office. You get what I'm saying to you? We're reevaluating things. We're looking at things. And that's really good because I can see in my heart, what am I doing? What have I been doing? What was I doing? Was church a religious duty to me, the things that I have to do? Was my relationship with God largely dependent upon the word I got on a Sunday morning, the word I got on a Wednesday night in Bible study? And, and if so, what happened to me during this time of lockdown when I, I was responsible for my own spiritual well-being and my own spiritual growth? Folks, when the joy of our salvation has truly captured our hearts, it erupts out of us. I don't need to muster it. I don't need to fake it. I don't need to pretend. It's not a chore. And the nature of God can, within us cannot be mustered. We cannot make it happen. But here's what we can do. We can yield to it. We can yield to the, nat the nature of God within us. Folks, we have this idea that in some ways we are, are controlling the things that are going on around us. And in a sense we are because we have the opportunity to make choices every single day. But we need to understand that our choices are binary. God says, I set before you life and death blessing and cursing. You choose for yourself what the outcome is 
that you desire. In other words, I have a choice which I am going to yield to. Am I going to continue yielding to what I want, self-gratification? Or have I reached a place of maturity as a believer where I'm saying, Lord, I want to yield to you in all things. As Jesus said, not my will be done, but your will be done. And that is costly in the sense that I lose everything that I want. But it is the best thing because I gain everything that Christ is. Every plan and purpose that he has for me, not just for this life, but, but the fruit of this life which will echo into eternity, which is good and is kind and is loving for me. I miss out on all of that when I live in this place. And God wants me to live in this place where I can shine his love, not for myself alone, but be that light to the world around me. When I yield to the, to the love of God and to the nature of God which He's deposited within me, when I'm willing to yield to that, I begin to see people in situations from His point of view. Not how can I be blessed in this situation or what's good for me in this moment or, or how is this going to work out for me, but I begin to see them through the eyes of God. I learned this lesson many, many years ago and it's something I need to be reminded of from time to time. It was somebody that I knew who, who was one of these people who was really heavily tattooed and the really big ears, uh, earlobes, and all these, these really studded up. And you, I wasn't quite sure, how do I, you know, and I got to know this person really, and I saw the gentleness in this person's heart, though they looked so rough on the outside. I got to see their insecurities and fears, and I realized, those are the same as mine. He looks like he's got it all, you know, our preconceived ideas. We got to see, we also see that the same thing in, in those we, we love and, and we admire and we get close enough to them and we see that they're human too. The point I'm making is that the love of God sees beyond the exterior. It sees beyond the, the makeup. It sees beyond, you know, people who, who we always portray that we've got it all together on, some, on the one hand, and it sees beyond the poverty and the rags and the dirtiness on the other. It sees beyond all of the outside stuff because it is not looking for how it can validate itself, how you can make me look good, how I can make you like me because I'm not focused on me. I'm able to look beyond all of those attributes that are on the outside and see to the heart with God's love to see the value in there. And when I have that heart, I become an agent of change for the kingdom. How? Number one, through prayer. <laughs> I begin to pray into people's lives because I see them through God's love. And I want to touch them with the love of God. I want them to know the goodness that I have tasted. I want them to experience the grace and the, of mercy and of forgiveness and of the life of Jesus. As I see their struggle, I'm not happy to just ignore the struggle anymore, but there's something that compels me to reach out to it. And I begin in the prayer closet. It's expressed through works of service, ministry, where I lay myself down to meet the needs of others, to be a blessing to others. It, it, it works itself out in speaking life into situations, not death, speaking encouragement, words that lift up, words that edify, words that convey honor and convey value, because that's what love does. Love does not tear down, love builds up. And like I say, while this isn't something that I can muster in my own strength, it is something that I can give myself to pursuing. Final scripture of the day. We're going to go back to 2 Peter. And we're going to pick up where we left off. 
Verse 5, Peter says, But also for this very reason, giving all diligence. What does that mean? That means I have... How do I yield to this? By giving myself to it. Add to your faith virtue. To virtue, knowledge. To knowledge, self-control. To self-control, perseverance. To perseverance, godliness. To godliness, brotherly kindness. And to brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours, in other words, if you have these things, that's the nature of God, and abound, you will be neither barren or unfruitful in that experiential knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. How do I start? Where do I begin? Here's a wonderful place. Sometimes we make the Word of God really complicated. It's really simple. What do I have? I've got faith. I need to add knowledge to that. That means I've got to study. I need to get into the Word. Self-control, what does that mean? I need to practice what I, what I read. I need to put these disciplines into my life, not as a legalistic thing, but because I'm busy changing it and I want to work this out and it's working in me. And I'm going to persevere at it. Because sometimes, how many of you know, when you start living out the Word of God, it doesn't always work immediately, does it? <laughs> God tests us and there's resistance. I need to persevere and work through it. And all these things begin to flow. You see, it begins with virtue and knowledge right where we started out our lesson this morning, but it ends with brotherly kindness and love. It begins in here, but that's where it stays for most of us. If what is going on in here is not finding active expression, then is it really alive? Is it re are we really yielding to it? Is, there re is, you know, is it just up here? We know a bunch of stuff. But we, and we're deceived that because we know it, it's actually working in our lives. It needs to find ex effectual expression. And this is how we separate ourselves from that spirit of self-gratification, uh, self that spirit of lust, and begin partaking in the wondrous nature of God, the nature of Jesus Christ within us. And I realize that as I come to an end with what I want to share, I haven't really stitched together a full garment for you. I haven't, um, you know, given you a full methodology and, and seven steps to how to get it, and this is how you would. I want to open this idea to you and hopefully create an appetite within your heart that this very nature that God that was, was um, uh, shown or, or uh, embodied in Christ has been given to you and I. And God's greatest desire is for us to walk, not to please self, not to live just for self, but with an awareness and a love in our hearts for those around us. And folks, in times like we are in now, never has the need been greater. Never has the need been greater. This doesn't begin by you standing on your street corner and suddenly starting to preach the gospel. This begins in your prayer closet and in the Word of God. Allowing that word to soak into your heart, giving yourself something to draw from, that when you go out into the world, you are looking at people through different eyes. How are you, look at the way you're behaving. How are you treating those around you? How are you treating your spouse? How are you treating your kids? How are you treating the people you're coming into contact with as you go? Are you seeing them as commodities that are there to serve you or they're just passers-by? Or do we yet have the eyes of the love of God which can see the value and the worth in each and every single one? And if we do, what are we doing about it? Because there's something that, that is growing 
Well, each one of us needs to be taking responsibility for the love of God and the grace of God which we have received for ourselves and finding avenues to express that and to shine that out. That is how the world is attracted to Jesus. Amen? So my message isn't revolutionary this morning. You've probably heard all of these kinds of things before. But I want to encourage you to ask those questions of yourself. I'm glad many of you have taken notes this morning. I've given you lots of food for thought this week. Do I still look and do I still dream for myself and for my promotion? Or do I have, so have I caught the heart of God for my life, for my situation, concerning what it is that I'm doing and concerning the people that God has placed in my life? We hope that you've enjoyed this message. For additional resources and more information, come and visit us at alphaomega.org.za.